Thank you, Judy. Children ages uh, three to second grade are dismissed to Children's Church. In an illustration from Preaching Today called Fred Rogers Created Rather Than Complained, we read this moving tribute to him by Jonathan Merritt, taken from a May 18, 2011 Q Ideas article called Restoration in the Land of Make-Believe. And here, here are some things from that article. Jonathan Merritt recounts how Rogers chose to reform society through his gentle and persistent influence on a children's television show. In 1965, a thin, soft-spoken man sauntered into Pittsburgh's WQED, the nation's first public television station, to pitch a show targeting young children. The concept, concept was simple enough. Convey life lessons to young children with the help of puppets, songs, and frank conversations. It doesn't sound like much. That is, until you realize that the man was Fred Rogers, and the program was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But Rogers was more than just a great neighbor or a good host. He was a restorer. According to Gabe Lyons in The Next Christians, a restorer is someone who views the world as it ought to be. Faced with the world's brokenness, restorers are provoked, not offended. They work to make the world a better place by creating, not criticizing, and by being countercultural and not relevant. Using this definition, Rogers may be one of the greatest American restorers of the 20th century. Rogers got into television because he hated the medium, and faced with the decision to either sour on television itself or work to restore it, he chose the latter. Fourteen years later, he would create one of the most beloved American television shows of all time, and one that would shape entire generations of children. Rogers was a devout Christian that almost never explicitly talked about his faith on the air. But the way his show infused society with beauty and grace was near biblical. You've made this day a special day by just you being you. He'd famously sign off. There is no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. In many ways, the lasting legacy of Fred Rogers will not be the greater emotional stability of generations of children or even a reinvigoration of imagination. It will be his example of how to restore the world through impassioned creativity and craftsmanship. For nearly four decades, Rogers entered our homes and entered our hearts. And each day without fail, he left our collective neighborhoods better and made our days a little bit more beautiful. So we've been studying Abraham. He has been led by God to the promised land for the express purpose of taking ownership of it. Along the way, he has had many interactions with the people native to that area. Being a neighbor has not been easy for Abraham. And I'm sure we all have stories of hard times dealing with our neighbors. But God had blessed Abraham in order to be a blessing to his neighbors, and we will see that played out here this morning. Everyone that Abraham came in contact with were pagan people but he was still called by God to be a blessing to them. We can learn a lot from Abraham on how we should interact with those around us, especially those who do not know God. Today we're going to see a second interaction between Abraham and Abimelech, which goes a lot smoother than the last one because 
This time, Abraham's treating his neighbors with respect. We can imagine that he is trying to make his neighborhood a better place by creating and restoring friendships rather than criticizing and deceiving. We will see him return to life as a peacemaker, as we saw with Lot earlier in Genesis. Worshiping the one true God was countercultural to the way the Canaanites and other peoples in that land would have been living, but Abraham wants to live in peace and harmony with them. One reason he would be able to live in peace with his neighbors was because God had blessed him. And we see these words in Genesis 12, 2 to 3. I will make you, you into a great nation, I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So many times we've talked before about being in the world but not of it. That doesn't mean we can be disrespectful to those who don't believe the way we do, or criticize them or look down on them. We're called to show the love of God to all people. And this should especially be true to those who are far away from God. How can we reach the world for Jesus when we are pushing them farther and farther away from him? Well, we can't. And that's the dilemma that we have not only individually, but also as the church. In Romans 12, 14, it says this. In fact, it commands us to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And again, in Romans 12, 17 to 18, we are commanded to never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. This is what we will see Abraham doing in our scripture this morning, and it brings us to our big idea. That when we live at peace with our neighbors, God can bless us so we can be a blessing to them. Before we look at how God blessed Abraham and how Abraham was a blessing, let's bow our heads with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word that is given to us to show us how to live on this earth. Give us ears to hear from your Holy Spirit this morning so we can live the way you want us to as we interact with our neighbors, especially those who don't know you as their Lord and Savior. Open our hearts and minds to what you want us to learn so we can share it with those that we come in contact with this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So our scripture this morning is found in Genesis 21, verses 22 to 34. There are four points this morning. The first point is confrontation. That's found in verses 22 to 24. This is what God's word says. At that time, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. This is the second time we've seen Abimelech. In Genesis 20, verse 1, we saw that Abraham and Sarah living in Gerar, where Abimelech was king. Abimelech and Sarah deceived the king by telling him that Sarah is his sister, and the king takes Sarah into his house, probably to be one of his concubines. But God intervenes, and Sarah is delivered before Abimelech can touch her. 
You know, Abimelech's not happy with Abraham and the way that he deceived him. And in the end, Abraham prays for God to heal Abimelech, his wives, and his slave girls so they can have children again. We notice that Abraham was not a very good neighbor in that story. He deceived the people and indirectly caused them to incur God's wrath. And that first encounter sets the stage for this one. At that time refers to a time after Isaac has been weaned and Hagar and Ishmael were sent away. Abraham and Sarah have probably been living in the area of Beersheba for a number of years now. And Abimelech approaches Abraham with the commander of his military forces, Philcol. Bringing his military commander with him could indicate a couple of things. First, Abraham may have been a person of some status. He may have had a political or even military presence in that area. If you remember back in Genesis 14, Abraham had defeated the four kings with 318 trained men in order to get Lot back. Abraham probably has an entourage of substantial size and power at his disposal. Abimelech probably considered him a force to be reckoned with, especially since he knew that a powerful God was on his side. And also, Beersheba was only 25 miles from Gerar, so maybe there were tensions in the area, and Philcol was there to make sure that hostilities did not break out. Or if they did, he would take care of it. Later in our story, we'll see that it is possible that there were ongoing problems on the border between Abraham's men and Abimelech's men. But what we see is Abimelech realizes that Abraham is doing well. His herds and flocks are prospering, which dominates a lot of land, and he now has a son with Sarah in his old age. You know, he would have been seen as being richly blessed. And Abimelech realizes this blessing because he says, God is with you in everything you do. He has seen firsthand God's blessing on Abraham, and now he has seen his continued blessing in these subsequent years. The sentiment that God is with you will also be noticed later in Genesis with Isaac and this same Abimelech, with Jacob and Laban, and with Joseph and Potiphar. And this begs the question of all of us. Do people in your neighborhood or in your sphere of influence see your life and say God is with you in everything you do? If not, we need to examine our lives and our interactions with our neighbors because they should be able to notice God and his work in our daily lives. And that brings us to the first next step this morning, which is to live my life in such a way that my neighbors see God at work in my daily life. If that's for you, you could mark that on the back of your communication card. Abimelech realizes that it is in his best interest for his people to live peacefully with Abraham and his people. But you know, he's not sure if he could trust Abraham on the basis of their previous encounter. He's hoping that Abraham will treat him now the way that he treated Abraham before. Ross states, it is interesting that the two things that Abimelech knew about Abraham was that God was with him and that he could not altogether be trusted. You know, we may wonder who the superior party is, Abimelech or Abraham. Abimelech acts like Abraham is as he asks for a favor instead of demanding terms. In the previous encounter, Abimelech being the king was the superior party who treated Abraham fairly. But now, based on what happened before, the roles seem reversed. Even though he is a king and commands an army, he knows that a powerful God 
is at work in Abraham's life. And he's asking Abraham to show him the same loyalty and a covenant relationship that he showed previously to him. Abimelech's suggestion of alliance with friendship with Abraham would not only be binding for the present, but for their children and descendants as well. Abimelech is hoping that by brokering peace now, it will bring long-lasting peace for the future. And Abraham's response is short. I give you my word. Literally, I, I swear. The use of the second pronoun reinforces the certainty of Abraham's pledge. Here the emphasis is solely on Abraham's act of swearing, but later on we'll see that they both mutually swear an oath to live in peace and harmony with each other for generations to come. There's no confrontation or deception with Abimelech who doesn't believe the same way that Abraham does. There's only acceptance. I like what Hamilton says. That God is with Abraham does not mean that he has a two-to-one majority over Abimelech. It means that others' expectations of Abraham now increase. This is why God has blessed Abraham, so that Abraham will be a blessing to those in his neighborhood around him. Abraham needs to be more respectful, more helpful, more humble, and more of a restorer than those around him, especially those around him that do not know God and are far away from him. That is what it means to be a neighbor in the place that God has put us. Our second point this morning is complaint. And we see this in verses 25 to 27. Again, this is what God's word says. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard only about it today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a treaty. So now Abraham swears to deal honestly from now on with Abimelech and his people. But before formally ratifying the treaty, Abraham lodges a formal legal complaint. It seems that Abimelech's servants had illegally and violently seized one of Abraham's wells. Of course, wells were important in a desert climate where water was the difference between life and death. Not only life and death of Abraham's flocks and herds, but the life and death of he and his family as well. And Abraham's claim to the water relied on two factors. One, Abraham had dug the well. And two, it was Abimelech who invited Abraham to reside anywhere in the land in the first place. We saw that back in uh, chapter 20, verse 15. And by doing that, gave Abraham the right to local pasturage and the use of the well's water. Now, the Hebrews suggested Abraham had been making this complaint several times with nothing being done about it. Here were the makings of a feud between the two men that had the capability to explode and cause irreparable damage not only to Abraham's witness, but to his relationship with Abimelech and the people in that region. There needs to be, needed to be respect and restoration. And this was a good test of their relationship and whether this vital resource could be negotiated fairly. You notice how this negotiation plays out. They both brought their complaints to each other. They both listened respectfully to what the other had to say and they were allowed to respond. Now Abraham, he's gauging Abimelech's response to see if he knew anything about the seizure of the well. 
But he seems convinced because he gives Abimelech sheep and cattle in order to formalize the treaty. The gift of sheep and cattle were to cement their relationship. The act of seizing the well will not be allowed to cause potential unrest. And we can notice a number of things about this encounter. First, it is Abraham who gives Abimelech the animals, meaning that Abraham was the inferior party, even though it was Abimelech who proposed the treaty. The gift was also given to cement a peace treaty between the two people. Abraham takes the higher ground, that he wasn't going to let the dispute over the well cause hostilities to, to get worse. Second, this is another example of cutting of the covenant that we saw between God and Abraham in chapter 15. Cutting the covenant was a ritual of cutting sacrificial animals in two and placing them in rows so that the two parties involved in the treaty could walk between them. This signified that whoever broke the covenant could be cut in two just as the animals had been. And thirdly, we also notice that in neighborly fashion, the two parties talk about the offense, they give their explanations which are accepted, and they finalize the treaty to the satisfaction of both parties. The covenant ensures that disputes of this kind would not be repeated by their children. And it would not be repeated by their children and their descendants, which would keep peace in the land for generations to come. Similar steps when used wisely today can produce harmony in place of discord and cooperation where there has been confrontation. That brings us to our second next step, which is to strive for harmony and cooperation when conflicts arise with my neighbors. It's an important thing to do today, I think, in this day and age. The third point this morning is committed. And we see this in verses 28 to 30. This is what God's word says. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. You know, Abraham wanted to show Abimelech that he was committed to the truth and to dealing honestly with his neighbors. Abraham, in addition to giving the sheep and cattle, also set apart seven ewe lambs for Abimelech. You know, this must have been a strange act for, to do in that time because Abimelech questions it. He's probably a little wary of Abraham's motives because he's been deceived before. And it may not have been normal for people to be overly generous within a covenant back then. But these seven ewe lambs were not for sacrifice. They were for a gift for Abimelech. Abraham wanted something from Abimelech, but it was only what he deserved and nothing more. Abraham had dug the well that Abimelech's servants had seized, and the proof was the seven ewe lambs. The lambs would have been vital to propagating his herd, and the generous number of seven would have reflected how important the well was to Abraham and to his descendants. Abimelech knew that this gift would put him under obligation to accept Abraham's version of the story surrounding the seizure of the well. Being able to supply this number of ewe lambs speaks to Abraham's wealth and his strength of bargaining position. The seven lambs were set aside as a witness that Abraham had dug the well and he had the rights of ownership to it. You know, it reminds me of someone given a reward for a lost wallet. When the wallet is returned to the rightful owner, the person who returned it might get a reward, which would show how valuable 
the, the returned item is. Just like the well was valuable to Abraham, so is the wallet to its owner. Only the owner of the wallet would be willing to give a reward for its return. The reward is proof that the wallet really was theirs. Just like the seven ewe lambs was the proof that Abraham had really dug the well and it was his. Only Abraham would be willing to give this valuable gift to get the well back. In accepting this gift, Abimelech was legally acknowledging that Abraham had dug the well, releasing any rights to it, and conceding that Abraham was in fact the the legitimate owner of the well. This would also hold Abimelech to side with Abraham in any future altercations involving this well. Ross says by securing the right to the well, (coughs) Abraham (coughs) Abraham was securing the continued enjoyment of God's blessing to him, represented by the well. Abimelech gains a pact with Abraham to ensure the future stability between them. Our last point is commemoration. And we see this in verses 31 to 34. This is what God's word says. So that place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. And there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. And we see commemoration taking place in a couple different ways here. First, in calling the place Beersheba, where the two men swore an oath to each other. The Hebrew word to swear means to bind by seven things. And the words swear and seven are very, sim- are very similar. And Beersheba means well of the sevens, or well of the oath, which fits this story of what happened here exactly. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that the the event caused the place to be called Beersheba. Most commentators believe the city was already named, but this event gave it more significance. Beersheba now becomes a place of commemorating the treaty. Abraham has prospered under God's blessing and has agreed to a peace treaty with Abimelech at Beersheba that will bring a peaceful coexistence, allowing Abraham to serve God in the land of promise. These commemorative naming, this commemorative naming also preserved for future generations the record of how this property was secured. Once the treaty had been sworn, Abimelech and Philcol returned to their own land, the land of the Philistines. It seems that Abraham was living on the outskirts of the land, ruled by Abimelech, but was close enough that Abimelech felt the need to make a peace treaty with him. The second way we see commemoration taking place is that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. In the Old Testament, trees were a symbol of life and blessing from God. Abraham has built altars, but this is the first time we see him building a tr- planting a tree. The tamarisk tree grew in sandy soil and was deciduous. It could grow up to 20 feet high and provide much needed shade in the desert. Its branches provided grazing for animals and its leaves excreted salt. Its bark was used for tanning, and its wood for building and for charcoal. It was considered a holy tree and had purifying qualities. Planting a tree would have had as much significance as building an altar, 
This tree was a witness to what God had done in showing him favor with Abimelech. He had been blessed by God and was showing the fruit of being a blessing to his neighbors as God, has, as God had promised. You know, trees have played an important part in Abraham's life in the promised land. He stopped by a tree in Shechem in Genesis 12, 6. He built an altar by a tree in Mamre in Genesis 13, 18. He lived near trees. We see that in Genesis 14, 13. And he entertained Yahweh under a tree, which we saw in Genesis 18, 1. By planting this tree, it reinforced his claim to the land. In fact, in some interpretations, the word tamarisk means a strip of ground, meaning that it's possible that Abraham didn't just plant a tree, but actually laid out a plot of land. And this would make sense in light of verse 34 that he settled down in the land for a long time. This tree was the proof of Abraham's faith in God for his prosperity and for his security and for the security of his descendants to come. Thirdly, we see Abraham calling on the name of the Lord in worship. He is commemorating the way that God has orchestrated this treaty so that Abraham could be a blessing to those in his neighborhood. Now Abraham legally owns a well in the land of promise and there will be peace and harmony in this land for his children and his children's children. When Abraham called on the name of the Lord, he called him Elohim, or the Everlasting One. And this name for God is used only here in Genesis. God was revealing himself to Abraham in every event that took place in the Promised Land. A Abraham knew that everything else would pass away, but God would endure for eternity. He knew that God would never change, so could cling to the promises that his descendants would one day possess this land as he was possessing it now. Wenham states that after so many delays, the promises of land and descendants at last seem on their way to fulfillment. But now came the responsibility to use this land for the honor and the glory of the Lord. This anticipates a peaceful coexistence that the Israelites should have with other tribes who would respond to the message of peace and desire to share in God's blessing. By living peacefully with its neighbors, the Israelites could more readily become the channel of blessing they were intended to be. So I want you to think about your own life. Can you look back and see God's sovereign hand at work to get you where you are today? I definitely can. And that should cause us to worship our sovereign Lord. That should cause us to call upon the name of the Lord in praise and worship. And that brings us to our third and next step this morning, which is to call on the name of the Lord in worship for his sovereign hand at work in my life. Finally, we see that Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time, you know, probably for as many as 10 to 15 years. It was probably a great time of peace and happiness for Abraham, you know, tranquil old age was a sign of God's blessing. This was going to be Abraham's neighborhood for a long time, and God had blessed him and would continue to bless him so that he could be a blessing to those around him. We may want to ask, what, what is the author's point in including this story? Well, Walton, his commentary says this. It has to do with covenant roots. Gradually, Abraham is establishing roots in the land, 
digging wells and planting trees. Additionally, as relationships are established with the peoples in the land, the blessing is taking root. And finally, Abraham's relationship with God is taking root as land and family become established. So how can we be good neighbors that would not only make Fred Rogers proud, but more importantly, our Heavenly Father proud? Well, we can live into the example of Abraham. First, believers should agree to request Agree to the request for peaceful relationships. Second, believers should try to restore the peace when it is disrupted. Third, believers should strive to ensure that peaceful relationships continue into the future. And fourth, believers must use their peaceful, prosperous life to serve God. God brings us peace and harmony so we can be a blessing to those that we come in contact with where we live, work, and play. So again, the question comes to mind, does the world see God in your everyday life? First, for God's purpose to be fulfilled through us, the world should see God in us. As Christians, we need to be aware that the people in our neighborhoods who don't know Jesus are watching us. They're watching us to see if we're different than, than everyone else. They're watching what we say, what we do. They're watching how we react when mistreated. They're watching if we grumble and complain, complain like everyone else. They're watching us at work, in restaurants, and across the street in our yards. Do we work hard or take shortcuts? Are we honest even the smallest matters? They are watching, and they should be able to tell that we are ambassadors of God and followers of Jesus without us saying a word. But when we do open our mouth and witness to the blessing and goodness of God, we need to be careful that our words match our, match our actions and vice versa. If we don't, the world will see us as hypocrites, and they won't be able to see God in us at all. Second, for God's purposes to be fulfilled through us, we have to be walking with God. In spite of Abraham's past deception, Abimelech recognized God in his life. Why? Because Abraham was a friend of God, and he walked in daily communion with him. He wasn't perfect but he had a reality with God, and God's gracious hand was on him. Abimelech could sense that in spite of Abraham's previous failures, he was a man who walked with God. As God faithfully provides us protection in our daily needs, and as we walk with him and give him credit for his care for us, as Abraham did, God uses us in the ordinary matters of life to bear witness to a world that desperately needs to turn to him. When we are faithfully walking with God, our neighbors will see it, and they will know that we have something they lack. If you know the Savior and are walking with him and enjoying his faithful provision, God wants to use you. He wants to use the ordinary events in your life to fulfill his purpose of blessing all the nations through, his Lord, through the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a privilege it is to be used by the eternal God as we live our ordinary lives on this earth. So as Gene and Roxy come to lead us in a final prayer, let's bow our heads. Lord God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continually indwell in us as we strive to be the kind of neighbors you want us to be in this world that you have placed us in. As we share the good news of Jesus Christ, help us to live in such a way that our neighbors will see you at work in our daily lives. 
Help us to strive for harmony and cooperation when conflicts arise with our neighbors. And let us remember to call on your name and worship for your sovereign hand at work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Our final song this morning is a familiar one we've sung before.